I suppose you'll be getting away pretty soon now full time is over, Professor, said a person not in the story to the Professor of Ontography, soon after they had sat down next to each other at a feast in the hospitable hall of St. James College. The Professor was young, neat, and precise in speech. Yes, he said, my friends have been making me take up golf this term, and I mean to go to the East Coast. In point of fact, to Burstow. I dare say you know it for a week or 10 days to improve my game. I hope to get off tomorrow. Oh, Parkins, said his neighbor on the other side, if you are going to Burnstow, I wish you would look at the site of the Templar's Preceptory and let me know if you think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer. It was, as you might suppose, a person of antiquarian pursuits who said this, but since he merely appears in this prologue, there is no need to give his entitlement. Certainly, said Parkins, the professor. If you will describe to me whereabouts the site is, I will do my best to give you an idea of the lie of the land when I get back. Or I could write to you about it if you would tell me where you are likely to be. Don't trouble to do that, thanks. It's only that I'm thinking of taking my family in that direction in the long. And it occurred to me that, as very few of the English preceptories have ever been properly planned, I might have an opportunity of doing something useful on off days. The professor rather sniffed at the idea that planning out a preceptory could be described as useful. His neighbor continued, the site, I doubt if there is anything showing above ground, must be down quite close to the beach now. The sea has encroached tremendously, as you know, all along that bit of coast. I should think from the map that it must be about three quarters of a mile from the Globe Inn at the north end of the town. Where are you going to stay? Well, at the Globe Inn, as a matter of fact, said Parkins, I have engaged a room there. I couldn't get in anywhere else. Most of the lodging houses are shut up in winter, it seems. And as it is, they tell me that the only room of any size I can have is really a double-bedded one, and that they haven't a corner in which to store the other bed, and so on. But I must have a fairly large room, for I am taking some books down, and I mean to do a bit of work. And though I don't quite fancy having an empty bed, not to speak of two, in what I may call for the time being my study, I suppose I can manage to rough it for the short time I shall be there. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. It's Short Story Short Podcast, people. And today, as always, I'm here with... Christy Baxter. And Christy, what story are we talking about today? We are talking about Oh Whistle and I'll Come for You, My Lad. By, by M.R. James. So I, I got the title wrong and <laughs> the, the author not at all. <laughs> I knew there was a James in there somewhere too, but I didn't, I didn't even try for that. So I guess um, negative points. Negative points. And I can't believe you wrote both this and uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. So <laughs> That's very surprising. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's start over. <laughs> all right. So this is a ghost story. And it is also, by 50 years, the oldest story we've talked about so far. And one of the things I love about it is how it plays with both the comedy and the horror aspect. Because there's this wonderful tone that was about how, the great example, of course, since he merely appears in this prologue, there is no need to give his entitlements, you know. So his character just pops by, but he's not important. We can forget about him, which technically makes us postmodernist. 
Yeah, and then you had a similar thing, like right at the beginning, when it's set a person not in the story to the professor. It's like, so it sets the tone right from the beginning. And it was so funny because this is my first interaction with the story. So coming to it, knowing that you had picked out a ghost story and then finding humor in the first paragraph, I was like, am I reading the right thing? Yeah, and it completely reminded me of another one of my favorite ghost stories, uh, The Canterville Ghost uh, by Oscar Wilde, which is... A hu it's usually posted as a, a humor story as opposed to a ghost story, even though it's about a ghost and is called the Canterville Ghost. Um, but when you finally do get to the ghost in this one, wow, I it creeped me out. It's, it's one of those classic, there is a potentially evil cursed text object stories, and then you get this terrifying ghost emerging from the bedclothes on the bed. And that is the imagery there, and just the very idea can give you chills during the daytime. It's that, that unexpected, and then also not being able to see what on earth this thing is. Those two things combined, it just, it, it, it's, it's that primal fear of something is coming to get me, and I don't know what. Mm -hmm. And I think it's here, it's actually benefited by the language. I think... Uh, the, since this is from 1904, I think it's very sort of, uh, it's dense for sure, but you know, I am glad to be able to report that he succeeded so far in this enterprise that the colonel who had been rather repining at the prospect of a second day's play, I mean, it's like this rich, like, language that's dense, but it's also at the time wouldn't have been seen as such. This would have been, I wouldn't say colloquial necessarily, but it was this idea that you have a uh, presentation that you make, that this is what the text should sound like. And I think, you know, here you see it with, uh, definitely with M.R. James here, you see it with Oscar Wilde, you definitely see it with Ambrose Bierce, uh, this sort of idea of uh, dense textualism, I guess. Yeah, it definitely, it has that denseness. It's, it's so dense, you can practically chew on it. Um, that you, you find in so much of that older literature, those, those of us who, who majored in English are very familiar with this. Mm -hmm. And it's the, the very, very long, long sentences, some of them almost paragraph length. And the, it's not only that, but it's also the vocabulary that is used, you know? I mean, it's very, very much not a modern thing because you would not hear, you know, at a feast in the hospitable hall, just as one example. Oh yeah, you're right. And you know, the, the beauty of it is that a lot of this story is pull-in, that it is, uh, you are sort of moving along, there's a lot about golf, for example. <laughs> yes, there is. But then when you get to the crux of the story, it turns. And it is so good <laughs> once it turns. And there's, there's sort of this dramatic irony that maybe I think is more a product of the distance that we have between now and the time that it was written, more so than anything that the author might have been trying to do, although I could be wrong. But you have this dramatic irony that is, is kind of created by the main character, Professor Parkins, his complete lack of 
any sort of consciousness of tropes. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, of course, you find this object on the beach and it has weird writing on it. No, you should not blow into that, you know? <laughs> like, I'm shouting at him, don't go into the basement, don't split up, you know? <laughs> like, all these, these sort of tropes that we have that have developed over time. And you really, I think, uh, the author does a great job of creating that, that escalation of sorts, but also a lot of it is provided just by his sheer naivete as to what is going on in the world around him. Absolutely. And that's, that's really one of the things that I think horror has lost is now the naivete is that they are somehow removed from the world. Very seldomly would you have a professor, for example, be presented as a, uh, let's say, the victim of a horror story. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that, about just the fact that he's this very learned man. But he also, I think in a way, being in the halls of academia, he also does feel removed from the world in a way. He doesn't feel like he is really in touch with the people around him or really what's, what's going on. And I think that's a part of his naivete as well. It's uh, a very good point. Too good a point. Thank you. Sorry? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is one of those stories that I think I'm really glad that I revisited just because I'd forgotten just how visceral uh, the uh, portion, the specific portion about the ghost emerging and the reaction. But the smart person in this story is the colonel. And uh, because whereas... Uh, the book-learned professor carries it with him. The colonel just goes and hops into the ocean. Yeah, yeah, the colonel is definitely sort of the, the reader insert in that he he almost is practically winking at the readers like, yeah, we both know what's going on, but, you know, look at this fool over here. He doesn't know anything. And so you have that, uh, it's, it's interesting for a secondary character to be the reader insert instead of the, you know, the protagonist. The protagonist, not very many of us could really um, <laughs> identify with a professor of ontography. Some of us aren't even really sure what ontography is. I think it's the study of writing and textualism. Uh, I'm thinking it is the printed variant of ontology. Oh, interesting, okay. Um, I could be wrong. My degree is not in English, but in publishing. So... I mean, I'm an English major, so I feel like I should feel bad that I don't know what this is. And now I feel like I have to uh, Google it just so that I don't like worry about this like up at night for the next week thinking, uh, ontography is the study of how living creatures react to the physiographic environment. So I was completely wrong. And, uh, <laughs> I am fine with that uh, because I am living a hundred years after this guy. So. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely interesting that it's that he would choose ontography for the professor's specialization, the the human response to the environment. Because here we have him bumbling along and interacting with his environment, but not understanding what those interactions mean or will do. So, I mean, I, I know that's not necessarily directly related to ontography, but in a sort of metaphorical way it is. Oh yeah, I could definitely see that. And I could definitely see that uh, the author is playing with this idea that uh, the interaction within the physical world, that a professor who is specifically removed from the physical world is studying that is just another little nudge in that 
that direction. I also love the, even in the early 1900s, authors were giving us the hooks for sequels and prequels. The phrase, the colonel who remembered a not very dissimilar occurrence in India. <laughs> Well, you know, oh, wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, very much. There's a, there's an awareness there. Um, it, it's very, uh, just about fourth wall breaking in a way, or maybe suspension of disbelief just a little bit, because it's like, it, it feels a little too much like the author inserting himself, but it's, it, it, it's not overdone. It's, it's just a throwaway line. So that just leaves the possibility there. So it, it does manages he does manage to pull it off, but at the same time it's like, okay, I see what you're doing. <laughs> well, I'm really glad we revisited this one because this is a fun little story that uh, I think will make my Halloween a little more terrifying since I'll be in a hotel room with an empty bed next year. Oh my! <laughs> I hope uh, none of the kids hop up into the bed and then just like sit up out of nowhere. <laughs> oh, I guarantee you they will. <laughs> I should read this to him as a bedtime story. That'll, that'll oh, there work. you go. That's a fantastic idea. Well, it's either this one or where are you going? Where have you been? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Okay, this one, this one. <laughs> oh, great. Well, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. Short Podcast.